Escape Pod 330. February 2nd, 2012. Escape Pod 330. February 2nd, 2012. The Ghost of a Girl Who Never Lived by Kathy R. M. Curley. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Mer Lafferty. Happy February! We're open again to submissions and have managed to get through most of our existing submission pile. I've yet to hear from my fearless assistant editor, Bill Peters, on the status of a couple of the final stories, but it's safe to say that most of the outstanding stories from the past two years have been answered. I'm truly sorry that the status of our slush pile got so outrageous and promise it will never happen again. This week's story is The Ghost of a Girl Who Never Lived by Keffy Curley. Keffy is a speculative fiction writer currently living in Seattle. He has two bachelor's degrees, one in physics and one in linguistics, and he's currently working toward graduate school in genetics. Keffy attended Clarion East in 2008 and is currently an active member of SIFWA. You can find him online at keffy.com. This story was originally published in Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show. So look in the mirror and tell me who you see. And I'll tell you, it's story time. The Ghost of a Girl Who Never Lived by Keffy R.M. Curley I am Sarah's second body. My first memory is of Sarah's resurrection in a room that smelled of cotton balls and hydrogen peroxide. That's funny, a man said. The world felt raw, sore, and new. Under my back, my butt, my fingertips, I could feel every thread in the sheets beneath me. The blanket over my stomach scratched. Padded straps crossed my arms. What's funny? This voice was a woman's. Got another error message, the man answered. Have you ever seen that one before? I felt the sheets with Sarah's fingers, and the texture conjured memories I didn't have. I should have known where I was and what I was there for, but I couldn't catch hold of the fleeting thoughts. In the dim light of the room, I could only see the ceiling. Let me see. I heard a frenzied clicking. It failed twice? Nothing copied the first time, so I started over. It got about halfway through, and then it gave me this. Error 2152. Copy error, the woman said. I've never seen that before. I've never even seen an error in the middle of a transplant. Did you check the manual? It didn't list this one. The woman sighed and said, The only thing I can think of is if we wipe everything back out and start over. Operating tables and the anesthetician's face, tissue paper examining tables, candles in a church. She's conscious, though, the man said. When the machine aborted, it sent the copy-completed code. Don't look at me like that. I don't know if I ought to mess around with it anymore or... The woman interrupted. You know we can't do that without contacting the parents. Come on, we might as well go see what the damage is. They stood over me. The man was the younger of the two, and he looked down at me from behind thick glasses. He held his clipboard tight against his chest like a shield. The woman stood closer to me. Her hair was light, either blonde or gray. She frowned like it was my fault. Can you hear and understand me? She asked. The man wrote something on his clipboard. I could hear a graphite rubbed free, caught in the paper. My mouth felt dry, and my lips did too, as though if I tried to speak, they would break apart. Yes, I managed. She unhooked the straps on my arms. I lifted my left arm and looked at the fingers, hand, wrist. Clean and smooth, unmarked. 
Cat scratch scar near my first knuckle, angry red and faded pink. Do you know why you're here? I wanted to say the right thing, but I didn't know what that would be. I don't know, I said. I don't. She's coherent, the woman said. We'll have to call the parents. The man nodded, and he was still writing. Scratch, scratch, scratch. He didn't answer her. The woman disconnected something that slid out from under the skin of my scalp, and I didn't like how it rubbed against my skull. Make sure you tell them we won't require the final payment until we get this sorted. Copy error, I said. Is that why I don't know where we are? Yes, Sarah, she said. I think. I walk until I find a cabin in the woods, the windows broken out by tree branches, by wind and rain and thrown rocks. The door hangs far on its hinges. Shotgun shells, wet with rain, raccoon droppings. These are the things that litter the floor inside. I step over them in Sarah's boots, into a cabin soggy and ruined from disuse. A dirty orange vest hangs on the wall over a stained and rotten mattress. Sarah has been here before. I know this the way I know so many things. They are the ghosts of objects that live in my brain. I am alone. The house is alone. I wonder if the raccoons still come in, and I wonder who owns what is left of this cabin. I climb sagging stairs to the loft. My feet sink into the wood with each step, and water oozes out. I realize then that I'm not trying to run away. There's nowhere to go. Sarah's mother was an angry, red-faced woman with a screech-owl voice. I first saw her the day after Sarah failed to copy into my brain. Sarah's father is a fat man with neatly trimmed brown beard and big, sad eyes. I wore one of Sarah's dresses and I sat in a little chair. I listened to their conversation and I wondered what it meant for me. They called me Sarah, but the words slid over my soul like water off glass. I made fists with my hands when I thought of that and remembered that even the little things I knew, that birds sing and wolves howl, I knew because Sarah knew them. The adults around me spoke to one another, as though the twelve-year-old girl in question was not even there. In a way, they were right, because Sarah was still dead, and I was not. "'You said there wouldn't be complications,' Sarah's mother said. Her voice was low and dangerous. Dr. Camille was calm, even though she was faced with the fury of a mother who thought, as she had said three times already, that she was losing her daughter for the second time." As I already told you, ma'am, we've never had this issue before. We're running a check on the mem files now. There are a few possibilities. The mem could be corrupt. It had better not be. This is my daughter's life. Honey, Sarah's father put his hand on her arm. He only met my eyes for a moment. Dr. Camille cleared her throat. <clears throat> We're checking our system for corrupted mem files. I suggest you take your daughter home for a few days. She is functioning. She doesn't even know who she is, Sarah's mother sobbed. She might as well still be dead. Dr. Camille looked at me. The brain isn't a computer, she said. It's also possible enough of the files transferred that she'll fill in the rest on her own. We'll run another assessment in a week and then discuss your options. Sarah's brother Benjamin was not a twin any longer, and he didn't say a word to me for three days. Sarah's room was left untouched after she died two years before, and I spent most of my time going through it. These were the objects that should have brought me memories, but all it did was make me feel like an intruder. 
No matter that the face I saw in the mirror was the same as the one in the picture frames, I was still not the girl who'd carefully lined up her shoes, sorted by color. I was not the girl who loved extinct sea life enough to cover my bed with stuffed versions of creatures now lost. On the third day, I sat on Sarah's light blue bedspread, with her computer in my lap. I used to, to look for other people like me, for clones or failed memory saves. I found nothing. I shouldn't exist at all, I gathered. It would be easier for everybody. I'm nobody, and nobody says, I am the clone of a dead girl, and I think. Mom cries every night because of you. Benjamin stood in the open doorway, watching me with the same brown eyes I saw in the mirror. Brother. I ought to have looked at him and thought of that, and remembered what we'd done together, even if it was only a fight or an argument sometime long in the past. I knew this because I knew what a brother was, but I couldn't feel it. A cold knot of anxiety tightened in my stomach. He crossed his arms and leaned on the door jamb. I didn't know what he wanted me to say. He knew what became before Sarah's death, and I didn't. I'm sorry, I said. The words were like myself, small and unwanted. His face went funny, sank into impotent 14-year-old anger. No, you're not, he said. You don't even know what that means. You're broken. I held on tight to the computer. No. I flinched when Benjamin entered the room. He was like cold air. You still don't remember anything, do you? You're my brother, I said. My, mine. These words were only sounds, devoid of meaning. They'll send you back if you can't remember, he said, if you don't start acting like yourself again, Sarah. Get out of my room, I said. Dr. Camille is here. She stands down under the loft in this ruined house. Go away, I say. Leave me alone. I want to stay here. I don't want to be Sarah. I hold on to termite-gnawed balusters like cage bears and look down at her. She's wearing a clean black suit. She doesn't much look like a doctor now, but then she's not at the hospital. Please come down, she says. I'm sorry for the past week. We're going to help you remember who you are, and then this will all be easier to handle. She looks at the stairs like she thinks maybe she can climb them to me, like she thinks she can save me despite myself. I don't belong here, and I cannot stay. I'm not Sarah, I say again. I don't know how to make her understand. If I become Sarah, then I won't be me. Dr. Camille frowns. I found Sarah's diary on the fourth day I lived in her room. She'd hidden it on the top shelf of her closet under a unicorn quilt. I pulled it down in a cloud of dust that made me sneeze. Patterned in blue with a sparkle of green gel pen clipped into the rings. If anything in the room were going to remind me of a life I was meant to claim as my own, it would be that. It frightened me. I climbed into the back corner of the closet, shoved shoes out of my way, let the clothing fall into place between me and the rest of the room. It was dark, but I could still read. Reading the diary felt like I was reading the story of somebody else's life. No part of it made me feel I was reading about me. I tried. Even though I already thought that I was not Sarah, I needed to try. Maybe Sarah was there, deep inside my head, waiting to come back out. I tried to think of the events in the diary as things that had happened to me. It didn't work. Old crushes on boys who had been in her class at school, who would now be several years older than us. Nothing. They were nobody to me. I held the book open on my lap and traced my fingers along the words, feeling the indentations that ballpoint pen made on paper. 
Paper and pen, and not electronic. Sarah left behind a tangible mark of having been here. I flipped through the pages as though some truth was hidden between them, and I could find it that easily. So much of Sarah rested in the pages of this book. Not all of her, but the parts that she thought were important. I could memorize the events that Sarah wrote down. I could pretend. If I pretended to be Sarah, would her parents even know? Could I? Remember as much as I could of the diary? Try to pretend that these were my own memories instead of something I'd only just read? I closed the diary and held it in the dim light of the closet. I come down from the loft. My dress is muddy, and so is my face from my attempts to wipe my tears. Dr. Camille smiles at me, but the expression doesn't look quite right. She's glad I came down, but she doesn't feel any joy. I let her fuss over my appearance, wiping my tears with a bunched-up tissue and straightening my dress. I walk with Dr. Camille back to Sarah's house and drag my feet in the fallen leaves. They smell of rotting alder. Sarah's dead, I say. You're Sarah, she says back, and she tightens her fingers on my hand. Do you remember what it felt like to wake up? It'll be just like that, but you'll remember the rest of your life again. That's not what Dr. Emery said, I tell her. I look up and watch Dr. Camille's face. The way she sets her jaw frightens me, but she doesn't rise to the bait. I think about pulling my hand from hers and running. On the fifth day, the skinny man from Grief Abatement Services, Incorporated, came out to Sarah's house. He walked with quick short steps and his hair scruffed around his head. Unruly, long, I watched him come to the front door from Sarah's window, curling my fingers around each other. Sarah! Her father called to me from the door of her room. I looked back to him, but I didn't move. There's someone here to see you! I followed him back down the hall and the stairway, down to the first floor of the house. The scruffy man sat on the least comfortable of all the chairs in the living room. His briefcase pulled up into his lap. Sarah's mother was not there. I hadn't seen her since I arrived. Hello, Sarah, he said. I'm Dr. Emery Bieber. He smiled, and I could see one of his teeth was a silver replacement. I'm not Sarah, I said back, automatic. It seemed the only thing I ever said to anybody. The smile went out like a light after someone's hit the switch, and he looked over my head to Sarah's father. G.A.S. sent her home like this? Sarah's father's hand tightened on my right shoulder, squeezing as though that would bring me safety. We were told she might regain access to her memory if she were in familiar surroundings. Dr. Emery looked back down to me. Might I ask you some questions, Sarah? I'm not Sarah, I said again. Well, he asked, who are you? Cruel question, and he had to know that it was. I pressed my lips together. How could I have a name of my own if nobody would let me find out what it was? Dr. Emery's briefcase had a hole in it, with white threads sticking out. There were papers inside and a pen. He put the case down on the floor and leaned forward in the chair, hands clasped loosely together in front of his mouth. Why do you say you aren't Sarah? I didn't want to tell him the same thing I'd said to everybody for the last few days. But there was that subtle hope I felt that maybe he'd understand me, unlike all the others. Maybe he wouldn't put aside how I thought and how I felt as only being symptoms of something that should have been fixed already. And then again, how could I possibly explain something that I didn't know in words? I only knew it through feeling. I fidgeted, playing with my hands. I'm not, I said. I would know if I was. How do you know that you're Dr. Emery? 
I wasn't trying to be a pain. Some part of me wondered if there was a feeling or sense that other people had, the sense of who they are, and that maybe that simply hadn't copied with the rest of what Sarah knew. Sarah's father took his hand from my shoulder. I wondered if he would leave me with the doctor to talk about what it meant to be Sarah. And Dr. Emery, for his part, was struggling to satisfactorily answer my question to himself so that he could share it with the rest of us. He frowned and pressed a finger against his lips. I suppose I worded that badly, he said. It's unusual to think you're someone other than you are. I just know, I said. I just know I'm not Sarah. Do you want to be Sarah? he asked. Nobody, not in five days, had asked me that question even once. No, I said, and Sarah's father left without another word. You don't? Dr. Emery fiddled with one of the latches on his briefcase without looking away from me. Why not? Because I'm me, I said, as though that were reason enough. And couldn't it be? I don't want to be rewritten. I don't want to go away. I walked past Emery and he turned on the chair to watch me. I sat on the couch and pulled my feet up, sinking into the cushion. Do you mind that I'm recording our conversation? he asked. Okay, I said. I wondered what Sarah's father would have thought had he heard that. I wondered what else was in the beat-up case. You're a standard GAS replacement clone, and you left the center five days ago, correct? I couldn't think of why he wanted to know. Yes, I answered. And there was an error, wasn't there? But they sent you out anyway. How do you feel about that? His look was too hungry, and it frightened me. For once, I didn't want to say what was expected of me. I didn't know what he wanted to hear, so I couldn't avoid the answer. Where was Sarah's father? I don't know, I said. I hugged my knees. I suddenly wanted to cry, but I couldn't say why. I'm not the person they want me to be. This isn't my body. It belongs to Sarah. But if she comes back, then where will I go? Will I be a ghost? Will I just go away? Do you think you're a person? He asked. And I couldn't hold back the tears anymore, because how could I be anything else? Of course I'm a person, I said. I cried. He smiled, a nice smile, and he played with the latch on his briefcase again. Thank you, he said. When we get back to the house, we don't go inside. There's already a car waiting to take us to the center. I don't want to get in. Dr. Camille pats my hand. Sarah's mother and father are inside the house, or maybe they aren't home at all. I don't know. Why would they come to say goodbye to me anyway? I'm not their daughter. I'm a ghost. Dr. Camille lets my hand free long enough to open the door and to the back of the car. I slide in over dark brown leather and let her buckle the seatbelt for me. I don't look up until she's closed the door, sealed me away from the rest of the world with steel and glass. In a window on the second floor, I think I see Benjamin. He doesn't wave, and neither do I. On my last night, Sarah's parents fought. I sat in her closet again with the diary. I leaned my head against the wall, and I could hear them clearly through the closet. Sarah's mother sounded like a dying eagle. You let him in? Do you know how bad this looks? He said he was a doctor. He was a reporter, for Christ's sake. I flipped through the pages of the diary. I didn't want to read them. I just wanted to feel the paper under my fingers. I wanted to feel something real. I don't think we're being fair to her. Fair? Fair? How is this fair to anybody? Clones are people, too. A shocking investigative report into GAS. What they don't want you to know about replacing your loved ones. The creaking sound of bed springs. Sarah's father's voice was low and even. I would never have agreed if I'd known it would be like this. 
Oh, sure, Sarah's mother retorted. You say that now, after you were the one who said we had to bring her home like this. Give her a chance, you said. This isn't right, he said. That girl in there is not my daughter. That's not right. We should have made them bring her right back, not take the closest they could make. You tell me how getting GAS sued is going to help anybody. If they get shut down, then we'll never get Sarah back. Don't you care? I care more than you do. His voice went up in pitch, rising with his anger. I closed the diary and held it so tightly that I could feel the corners of the cover dicking into my skin. That's news to me. You just wanted to bury her and give up. The bed creaked again. Someone standing? We should have. I heard their door slam and heavy footsteps down the hall. A pause, and then the front door slammed, louder. A silence fell over the house. I crept out from the closet. I climbed into the bed and slid the diary under my pillow. I was about to turn the lights out when the doorknob turned and Sarah's mother came in. Her eyes were red, probably from crying. I thought of what Benjamin had said, but I didn't care. I didn't want to make her happy. She crossed the room to me, bent to kiss me softly on my forehead. She smelled like sickly orange perfume. I wanted to wave her away from me, but I settled for clutching the blue and white comforter in my hands. Good night, honey, she said. Tomorrow we'll bring you back to the center and they'll put your memories back. She tried to pull the blankets up to my chin, but I held them down with tight fingers. She gave up and turned the light out, felt her way back to the door. I waited until she was silhouetted in the doorway, and then I said, Sarah's dead, Mom. We reach the center at midday, but we don't go through the front doors. I feel like a fugitive, hurried out of the car and into the back door. I ask why we're going that way, but Dr. Camille doesn't answer. She leaves me in a little room with the plastic toys for children much younger than I am and magazines that nobody likes enough to steal. I pick up an orange plastic block that says B on the side just to have something in my hands. I can feel the imperfect seam left by the mold it was made in. I worry at it, running my finger over the rough plastic edge over and over. After a long time, Dr. Camille comes back. She's changed her clothes and looks like a doctor again, and she waves for me to follow her through to the double doors. We're ready for you, she says. I woke in the morning, as soon as the sun hit my second-floor window and filtered pink through the Venetian blinds. At first, I didn't want to get out of the bed. I flipped over to my stomach, twisting around under the blankets. I pulled the diary out from under my pillow and turned it to the last page. I unclipped the pen and pulled the cap off. The end of the pen was warped with the indentations of Sarah's teeth. I realized then that I didn't know what I wanted to write. Dear Diary, I started, and I crossed it out. Sarah never started her entries like that. She just started with a date, so I wrote that in underneath the crossed-out salutation. Sarah, I wrote. My handwriting looked nothing like hers. It was jagged in all the wrong places. I was you for a week. I wasn't very good at it. I'm sorry. I looked at it for a while. I watched the gel ink dry. I signed it. Me. I snuck out the back door while the rest of the house still slept, tiptoeing through the yard. I ran when I got to the trees. I wait. I lie on clean sheets and a plastic mask covers my mouth and nose. The lights dim to a soft red glow and Dr. Camille rests one cool gloved hand on my forehead. She starts to count down from ten. I close my eyes. I don't know who I'll be when I open them. I'm scared. <laughs>
with our story. Special thanks to Keffy, who agreed to let me run this on a handshake when I messed up our schedule. Normally, I'm not crazy about open-ended stories, but this one works for me. And it really works for me. I think I'd rather not know. I think I'd rather imagine what happens. Of course, the happy ending lover inside of me, yes, I have one, so sue me, was trying to figure out how the clone could be set free and they could just cook up a new one for the parents. But knowing what I know of corporate practice, little things like ethics don't get in the way of good business. Then again, is it ethical to the parents to make a little not-Sarah and let it wander around with a new identity? These are the questions that Keffy made us ask. Kind of reminds me of the old Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio show, where there's the ethical problem of the Lentilla clone machine, where they start the new clone when the other clone's only half done. So you can't turn it off, because that would be murder. And so there started to be thousands and thousands and thousands of these clones. But that was how Douglas Adams dealt with ethical questions, with very bizarre humor. Let's hear from our assistant editor, Bill Peters, on what you guys have been talking about in the forums. Hello, faithful listeners. I'm here this week with Feedback for episode 324, Long Winter's Nap, by Catherine H. Schaefer, and read by Our Mer Lafferty. This Christmas tale featured a Santa Clower. Talia said it was a charming story. So glad she didn't end up getting kidnapped by the Hots. I'd personally be interested in reading more set in this world. It seems like there's a lot of interesting stories to be told. I also wonder what the robot's reasoning was, in the end, for letting her go. Maybe he somehow perceived her as a potential threat to the other children and thought it was best that she went? Well, I guess it was pretty clearly an AI, not just a bot. Or maybe that the Hots treated it like a bot, but it was really more of a person, and since she recognized this and decided to do her a favor in return. Huh. SF Fangirl said, I liked this story. I didn't love it, but I certainly didn't hate it. I was very, very happy that Littlest One survived and escaped. I wasn't looking good, it wasn't looking good for her, and that would have made a very unhappy ending to a charming Christmas story. I can't point to anything wrong with the story, really. It just wasn't my cup of tea. The unreliable narrator made for an interesting effect, though, and I thought ending with littlest one aware of who Santa Claus really was and excited about her secret knowledge was the happiest ending possible. I was pleased with that because I was rooting for her. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week for the feedback for episode 325. Bad Dogs Escape. Thanks, Bill. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. All other rights are reserved by our authors. We're a pro-paying market, meaning that we live on your donations. We are EscapePod at EscapePod.org and our sister podcast, the fantasy podcast PodCastle at PodCastle.org and the horror podcast Pseudopod at Pseudopod.org. EscapePod is edited by Mer Lafferty with Bill Peters as assistant editor and Matt Weller as producer. Our music is by Daikaiju. You can find them at Daikaiju.org. And now for the monthly spelling of Daikaiju, D-A-I-K-A-I-J-U dot org. That was our show for this week. Our quote comes from the immortal Billy Shakespeare. To thine own self be true, and it must follow, as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Thanks for listening. Have fun, and be mighty.
We'll see you next week.